Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins, and I'm on a screen with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Also on our screens is the legendary Billy James, who joins us all the way from California. Hi, Billy. Hi. How are you, gentlemen? <laughs> very well. <laughs> very well, thank you. We're very, very well. It's lovely to see you. For those who don't know, Billy is the man who did Bob Dylan's publicity in the early 60s. Uh, played a huge part in the signing of the birds and the doors, discovered Jackson Brown, so much more besides, and pretty much put Laurel Canyon on the rock and roll map. So we're really looking forward to talking to you about all of that, Billy. But let's start with Dylan, who publishes his eagerly awaited new book, The Philosophy of Modern Song, next week. Will you tell us what it was like when that skinny little kid from Minnesota first set foot in the offices of Columbia Records in New York City, where you were working? Well, I will tell you what it was like the first time I saw him, which was in the studio. John Hammond, the late great talent discoverer and record producer, called me from the studio and said, Billy, I have someone here I think you might be interested in. Why don't you come up? This was at 799 7th Avenue in Manhattan. And so I went up and there he was, this scruffy looking, skinny little (laughs) kid. And because of my, well, because of a combination of his gifts as a singer, as a performer, as a presenter of music, and also because of my ignorance of the blues in general and white blues singers in particular, I was quite astonished at the quality of his singing. John Jacob Niles, perhaps, uh, Richard Dyer Bennett, those are performers whom I had heard in my childhood, but they didn't make all that much of an impression on me. So I didn't know about John Hammond Jr. or the producer's son, who was a white blues singer. I didn't know about any of those guys. Right. So that's what struck me at first. I was just blown away. I was just astonished at the kid. He was just phenomenal. And this was even before hearing, understanding, or appreciating the lyrics. I think they were I don't think any of them, I don't remember, you'll know better than I, whether none of them were his compositions. Oh, Talk in New York, I think, was on that first record. Yes. Don't know why I love you like I do. Something was on that first record. Uh, See that my grave is kept clean. So that was my first impression. Well, I don't know why I love you like I do. Nobody in the world can get along with you. And I mean, you have talked in interviews about what essentially a a square place Columbia was, despite John Hammond. Mitch Miller was the kind of presiding power, wasn't he? And so Dylan was very unlike anything Columbia had signed before. Is that is it fair to say that? 
It is indeed. I had to tell the advertising department that there was a magazine called Sing Out and <laughs> that this was where, in fact, they should put their ads for him and the Brothers Four and Carolyn Hester and any other folk music artists at the time. Uh, yeah, I mean, plus... His appearance was off-putting to them. <laughs> this was, let me see, 1960... 61. It's 61, yeah. So it's it's New York City 61. It's, yeah. it's button-down Madison Avenue. It's Mad Men, isn't it? Really? Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. That's the period it was. And he himself said in the interview that he f- could sense the animosity that was emanating from those folks at the label toward him. He said something like that. He, I don't know if they saw me on the street, they looked kindly upon me or words to that effect. Mm. He just didn't feel at all comfortable in that milieu. Billy, how soon after you sat in on that first recording session, did Hammond ask you to, write the press release was it a matter of weeks i can't remember if it was john who put that request in and actually it's a correction it's not for a press release it's for the bio the publicity biography Mm -hmm. i used to write dozens and dozens and dozens of publicity biographies of uh, g normandy and leonard bernstein i would catch and lift generously from previous writers, just (laughs) throwing together all of these proper phrases and language and whatnot. And so it might have been a woman named Deborah Ishlan. Debbie Ishlan was head of the creative services department, which was on the third floor. And it may have been Debbie who asked me to write the bio on Bob. Okay. Do you remember the conversation? With Bob? Yes. Dimly. I would, you know, I mean, I would, I would have to, you know, I mean, I, I've already confessed to you that I have this mild cognitive impairment. Uh, I can't remember the medical phrase. It's not uh, a version of the word anecdotal, but it's like that I forget anecdotes. I just forget things. So I must convey that to you now that I don't remember all of that, the niceties, and you know, and all the the subtleties of that. But yeah, I remember it. I remember the sense of the room. It was a, a very small office that I had. And I can remember the two of us sitting there and recording on my enormously heavy woolen sack recorder that I used to cart around to <laughs> record Robert Goulet performing in some Broadway show or another. It was just <laughs> such enormous reel-to-reel ugliness that it was. It was <laughs> terrible. But anyway, there we were, and, and uh, we just carried on for a really long time. And then I lost my copy of the tape. Things I, Bill Graham had given me a full set of the posters from the Fillmore, uh, and I lost all of those from oh, the house. Oh. So here I am losing things from my home. <laughs> You know, in Laurel Canyon, where I tend to welcome all sorts of people that I've never oh, I met. See. So, right. So, so somebody... there's no telling where those things went. Oh. So 
that explains why, and I was delighted that somebody or other found a fragment and posted it online, and that's how come I have some degree of access. Why don't we hear a very short clip from that audio interview, Billy, because it, I mean, it, it is very murky. I doubt anyone is going to be able to hear it, but I will, I will actually read out what we think Bob is saying in it. It's <laughs> first, a fourth or fifth generation you know, recording of a recording of a recording, probably. But, Jasper, let's just hear this little snippet. I never lived in a big city until I lived in New York. Me too. And uh, I don't think it's gotten the best of me. At least I, I know it has gotten the better part of me. I don't think it touched me. It might have touched me a little bit. Uh, in fact, it has touched me a little bit. But uh, I've never lived in a city uh, that, was, that was more than, uh, well, 15,000 people. Yeah, I mean, we'd have featured more, but as you can tell, it's pretty difficult to hear what Bob, I think, said in that, and I'm happy to be challenged by any of you. I never lived in a big city until I lived in New York, and I don't think it's gotten the best of me. At least, I know it hasn't got the better part of me. I don't think it's touched me. It might have touched me a little bit. In fact, it has touched me a little bit, but I never lived in a city that was more than 15,000 people. It's vintage, Dylan, just kind of changing direction with every with every phrase and obviously we do have the transcript of that interview which has been you know doing the rounds for many years it doesn't correspond very exactly with what we hear in this audio but i'm assuming you know the audio was probably about an hour of conversation and you took out what you thought were the best bits right yeah my recollection is that it did run for about an hour it was quite lengthy is my recollection right did you already have a sense of him at that point as someone who was kind of this this character this prophet this guy who who would inspire all these imitators and all these analyses of him you know because he was only 20 or so at, at that time what was your sense of him as a as a young man none of the things that we have come to appreciate about him were apparent to me at the time the general question I'm often asked is, did you know he was going to be as famous yeah, as he is? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Come on. You know, I mean... It's ridiculous. My sense of him was like my sense of all of my friends and acquaintances in the village and the people I knew in my former career as an actor. I mean, he was just normal within that particular milieu. He just seemed... I don't know, normal, but fascinating. Mm -hmm. There was something that I couldn't put my finger on mm -hmm. that was quite interesting to me. Yeah. Did you ever see him live? I saw him at Gertie's. Yeah. I saw him at a concert at, it's now called, I think, SUNY State University of New York or right. City College, City College of New York. It was a concert for CORE, Congress uh -huh, uh -huh. of Racial Equality. Well, Robert, Sh we we got Robert Shelton's reviews on the site. Um, Robert Shelton for the New York Times, uh, writing about the, precisely those shows, certainly Gerdes, and him sort of having the sense of who is this guy, and it's you know none of it quite makes sense, but it's clearly really something. Is the, what what you get from Shelton? Yeah, I think Sh Shelton said something about looking like a cross between a choir boy and a beatnik. <laughs> I think I think that was I think that was Bob Shelton's yeah. phrase about him with a corduroy cap on. Something that speaks quite well to Jasper's very good question 
is another piece of audio. Given the poor quality of the audio we just heard, this is slightly better. And this is pertains to the same period, like very, very early in Dylan's career after he comes to New York. This is his friend, Eric von Schmidt, who befriended Bob and saw him play possibly as early as June 1961 at Club 47 in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And this is him kind of answering Jasper's question. <laughs> I had heard of there. He did some talking blues, the Bear Mountain Picnic, and a couple of other things that he had written that were, which I saw at the 47, the Club 47 in Boston, or Cambridge rather. And, uh, uh, you know, it was obvious this guy was a creator. Too, you know, but how how far this would go, I had no idea. I mean, I I I, I was aware that this guy was, you know, wasn't a just a, a Woody Guthrie imitator, almost you might say, or or, or devotee. He, he, you know, he, you knew something was going on. <laughs> you know, this was a creative force. Well, I saw they advertised one day that the Bear Mountain picnic was coming my way. Come along and take a trip. We'll bring you up there on a ship. Bring the wife and family. Bring the whole kids. Yippee. Does that answer your question, Jasper? <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Barney. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, uh, Eric was talking in 1992 to Larry Jaffe, but he obviously was anticipating your question. Actually, so it's a really nice interview, isn't it, Mark? Yeah, it's great fun. He really goes into this thing about who wrote what, because he talks about Baby Let Me Follow You Down, that he himself got credited with on the album, and then, in fact, he reckons it's either Reverend Gary Davis or Blind Boy Fuller. Uh, and and he, he really talks about Dylan's sort of magpie instincts, his, how good he was at taking something and then moving it on somewhere else altogether. It's terrific. And we'll play the clip in a, in a second about the London. Actually, Barney, why don't you tell us about the London, the London well, stuff? Well, yeah. It's great. So I thought, look, yeah. So there is this, it's quite a long clip. And then we'll come back to you, Billy, and just talk about how Dylan changed, you know, over the course of five, six years and your relationship with him as he became this, this superstar, really. So this is, we jump forward to January 1963 and Eric von Schmidt is in London with Richard Farina. Just setting the scene, I mean, Eric sort of sets the scene himself, so we'll just listen to it. It's about two minutes. It, it's a great story that does tell you quite a lot about Dylan. Dylan showed up, uh, knocked on the door, and this was 63, January of 63, incredibly cold winter in England. And... Uh, Dick, of course, had had was instrumental in getting him on Columbia Records, in that he had got him on uh, Carolyn Hester's session, and John Hammond had been there, and uh, you know Dylan was playing harmonica. That was what the gig was for him, and Hammond, with that uh, incredible perceptive uh, quality that he had. Uh, uh, latched on to him but at any rate so we're over there in 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 england and uh dylan had come to see me he heard that i was staying at this particular place and and he 
for about the first 15 minutes, it was, even though Dick and, and Dylan had known each other, there was such a, apparently, a competitive ego situation going on because Dick was a folk musician and a writer and a poet, you know? Yeah. These guys, it was like this ego thing was like bristling. Mm. And I was sitting in this big, long, very swanky English room with abstract paintings on the walls and Danish furniture and... And they were sitting in chairs, you know, like a foot apart. And I was sitting a, a little bit to, toward the end of the room, and neither one of them acknowledged the other. Farina did it first, and then there was no bounce back. And so they talked to me uh, as if neither one of them were there, you know. And I was almost like I was an interpreter. And... The, after about 15 minutes, I mean, this is very awkward, uh, Dylan said, hey, I got a song I just wrote. You know, Rick, would you like to hear it? You know, <laughs> like if Farina wasn't there. doesn't matter whether he would like to hear it or not. And the song was <laughs> Don't, Don't Think, think Twice. <laughs> but I wish there was something you would do or say To try and make me change my mind and stay we never did too much talking anyway But don't think twice, it's all right I mean, it just illustrates, I think I've heard about this intense competitiveness between Dylan and Farina before I mean, I don't know whether it was more on Bob's side than on Farina's side, but it's it's such a bizarre story. But then, you know, you only have to watch Don't Look Back to know that Dylan, you know, could be very, pretty weird socially. I mean, is that fair to say? <laughs> it is fair to say that actually he goes on to say that Farina really loved the song, and after that, everything loosened up a great deal. Yes. Uh, a lot of this, the conversation is about drinking, about what they were drinking in England. None, none <laughs> of them were over fond of the English ale, so gin and tonic. He doesn't even know what it's called tonic. He says this is the stuff that's got quinine in it, you know. Well, that, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. tonic, you know. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Eric, you know. But, yeah, basically that, and, 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 and smoking weed. And he tells this marvellous story about... Dylan really smoking a whole bunch and then going out on stage with Joan Byers in one of her London concerts and singing an endless version of A Hard Brain, which sort of like went on about 25 minutes or something. But um, it's great. It's a really good interview. Well, so my question to you, Billy, was is a simple one. Uh, how did Dylan change in the period of time before you moved to Los Angeles at the very beginning of 1964? How did you, what changes did you see in Bob? I just want to say that Eric's description of that experience reminded me of Bob's attitude toward that English journalist, maybe in Don't Look Back or in some film documentary that I've seen uh, where he was quite dismissive of whoever his interlocutor was or somebody who was asking questions of him or whatnot. And it was that side of him that I think Eric was experiencing that I have seen Bob demonstrate when audience members, after he had, quote, gone electric, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, when they would call, call him a Judas and whatnot 
from the audience, and he was quite hostile and angry and and uh, from the stage towards those audience members, as well he should have been. And so I did see those kinds of changes in him over the years. I saw him become cautious. I saw him become circumspect socially. That's the change I saw, which is common among those other famous people that I've known who are out in society. They become cautious as well they should Mm -hmm. be. And so I did see that sort of change in his way of his way of seeing, his way of operating. So on the home page, we have a picture of you and Bob at a press conference in Hollywood in December '65. So I want to is... interrupt you to uh, name the gentleman in the background. Oh yes, he please. was a Columbia Records employee named David Swaney, S W A N E Y. He was in the publicity department. Yeah, he may have replaced me in the publicity department when I created that new job for myself, which we can go into some other time. But I did want to mention David Sweeney. Oh, well, that's very helpful. He left Columbia to go to work in the uh, Christian music business. Oh, okay. So, well, there's a piece we have on RBP, which we're going to feature as part of our kind of Bob and Billy feature, which is by Eden from KRLA Beat on the 22nd of January, 66. So this is immediately following that press conference. And, you know, apropos what you just said about, about Bob's dealings with the press and so forth, you say to her, she's interviewing you about Bob, and you make the point that People ask him silly questions and then are disappointed when they get silly answers. But there's at that press conference, someone asks Bob if he has any feelings. And and you say, well, someone did ask that question. So the answer to the question deserved a silly answer. And the answer was, no, I don't have any feelings. And I think it's a very, very good point. The banality of the questions that were thrown at Bob in that era is just staggering, isn't it? It includes the question, how many protest singers are there? <laughs> I, it's yes. Just yes. Like, but like Bob's got a list in his pocket. <laughs> right. I mean, He's going to whip out a list, nuts. as you say. <laughs> yes, right. At the latest count. Yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, why don't we just talk about, let's talk about your move to LA because I assume, you know, Bob was doing you know, he was touring, he was doing press conferences. And I'm guessing Columbia said, look, Bob's going to be playing. Yeah. With the Hawks probably in Southern California. And we need you to run the press conference, but were you in touch with, with Bob once you'd moved to LA? Probably, but not of any great consequence that I can, that I can recall. And I vaguely remember that apart from any performances that he may have been doing in Southern California. It may have been either just before or just after a tour of Australia that he was either just returning from, I think about to embark upon. That's the reason he was in Los Angeles. He asked me if I could uh, lend him a typewriter. So I got him a typewriter up to the uh, Chateau Marmont, which is where he was staying. Uh, There's a picture of the Capitol Records Tower Behind you, Barney, behind your right shoulder. I don't know what that's from, but it just does remind me of that particular time and space. No, I didn't. I didn't have 
too much contact with him. Well, we did we did go through a frozen period in our relationship that followed that Newsweek disaster when he was asked by a Newsweek journalist named Andrea Svedberg about his family, and he said he never saw them when she had deduced that his family was, in fact, his father and mother were, in fact, staying in Manhattan at the time, ready for a Carnegie Hall concert with him. So <laughs> Albert blamed me. He blamed me. You know, although this blame was being thrown around about the hatchet job uh, that prompted Bob Shelton to write a letter, an open letter to Osborne Elliott at Newsweek or somebody of the sort saying Newsweek has departed from its usual uh, level of uh, responsible journalism and to, into an area that can only be described as yellow journalism and whatnot. <laughs> I mean, it was a, he just went on and on and on about how deplorable this, this action was. Right. And Bob got angry with me. I don't need you. I'm a writer. All I need is my pen and words to that effect. (laughs) 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 This is on the phone in a conversation, uh, you know, and so. Well, you're referring, of course, to Albert Grossman. So you got balled out by. Right. Oh, and someone told me later he tried to get me fired. Uh, (laughs) Right. I gently tried to suggest to them that if they don't tell their publicists these these things that other journalists may discover, it's not going to go well for them. They've got to tell their publicists the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, you know, so they can, if necessary, defend their client. Oh, that didn't work. So, yeah, so so there was that period between the time he and I had things that we did together in New York, and I moved to California, and then he came to California, and it was I brought that up to him, and I think I've said this in an interview that he said, you know, there's a man threatening suicide and uh, threatening to jump off the Empire State Building, and you've got that on your mind? You're worried about that? Don't be ridiculous. It's, in essence, what he was saying. He passed it off. He said, don't think twice. It's all right. (laughs) That was a change that, that, that went on in our relationship. One journalist who was incredibly favourable to Dylan, absolutely knocked out by him, was Maureen Cleave here in London, the Evening, Evening Standard. And uh, Mark happens to have added yeah. a great piece you wrote in what, like the spring of 64. Yeah, um, it was think, uh, Dylan's first official tour of the UK. He had been, as we know, in, over in 63, which we've been talking about. You know, he does his usual shtick. St- he says... If I can sing it, it's a song. If I can't sing it, it's a poem. If it's not a song or a poem, it's a novel. And he's, then he talks about leaving home. He says, I ran away with motorcycle gangs, carnivals, traveling druggists. Where I come from, it's not so special to run away. You can get out of the town easy. You can see both ends of it from the one place, which I love that. <laughs> it's terrific. I mean, the thing is, is that, I mean, Maureen Cleave is the exact opposite of the dumb journalist who says, how many protest things did you know? You know, yes. her interviews going right back to the early 61, 1961 around there of various pop musicians, managers. She's very aware of the, how the business works. She's constantly acute and, and spot on. You can see him warming to her in this interview. 
because he's she's not asking the standard questions. It's terrific. It's it's it's, it's really yeah. good. That bit that Mark read out about motorcycle gangs and carnivals and so forth. I mean, in a sense that that plays off the original interview that you did, Billy, with him. And I mean, do you remember he's talking talking about running away and to to gallop New Mexico when he was seven years old, and you you sort of go. Seven years old. I mean, did you think this guy is full of it, or what is he doing here? Why is he making up these wild stories? I'm struggling to answer that to because I'm trying to recall whether I believed him or not. He talked about having relatives who were gamblers. I think he also talked about Navis, Soda, Texas. Sioux Falls, South Dakota. It was another place he talks a lot about. And I I think it's fairly clear that he'd never been anywhere near some of these places, (laughs) right? (laughs) Right, (laughs) which we have learned since. But then, I mean, he may have told me, or we may have learned since, that he did, in fact, play with Bobby V, was it, that he played with? I think he did play with Bobby V. At a certain point very early in his career that mm. he had to have left home to have done that, which have, <laughs> we, we have since learned. I believed him. I believed all these outlandish stories. Fair enough. Now, I was not at all skeptical. Having done these interviews for some time, not any great length of time, but for some time I had been interviewing musicians and asking them about their backgrounds. I had... I was gullible, but never, I had no reason to be skeptical. I had no reason to doubt that mm-hmm. what he was telling me sure. was the truth. Oh, okay. You went to Navasota, Texas, and you have an uncle who's a gambler. And, you know, okay. Well, tape is rolling. You know, fine, I guess. <laughs> no, it's great. I mean, it's great stuff in many ways, isn't it? It's, it's sort of Dylan writing his own beat novel you know as as he talks to you just making up this romantic hoboish story about his his early life one other thing from the cleve thing i think is really interesting is he's been penned into this thing of being a protest singer and all this stuff he says i'm only human and i can see many sides to the question i don't associate myself with any creed if i said i was a pacifist i'd be a liar which actually is it's a pretty strong thing to say at that particular point in time. And, and, and I think that's really interesting. I think it's good. One of the things that I really liked in the Eden piece that you mentioned earlier, Barney, is that, Billy, you're quoted as saying, and this is 1966, talking about Dylan's influence. His influence is quite, quite far-reaching musically and verbally. That influence manifests itself in his ability to make people think and also to help them enjoy themselves. I think we get kind of pompous in evaluating Dylan. Hey, He's a lot of fun. His work is fun. And I love that quote from you because I think that it's kind of prescient because we've only got more pompous in evaluating Dylan in the last, you know, near on 60 (laughs) years. And I think that people do kind of miss the, you know, some of the myth making is partly just for his own entertainment. And some of the music is just for his own entertainment. I mean, Dylan fans get quite, or some of them get quite Shirty about the you know the traveling Wilburys, for example, because it's not you know deadly serious and and kind of thing. But it's a facet of him that I think is kind of underappreciated. So I thought it was really nice that that you're already talking about that in '66. Well, yeah, I, like that you, quote too. I, I think you put it well when you say that 
when he describes this history of himself, he's doing it for his own entertainment. That's terrific. <laughs> you know, that's it. <laughs> you know, to split the ears of the groundwork. I wanted to mention Grill Marcus, who has a Dylan book, another Dylan book coming out. It's already out, in fact, but it's it's close in date to the publication of Bob's own book next week. It's called Folk Music. So I reached out to Grill and told him that we wanted to you know, give folk music a plug and whether any Dylan pieces that he would like to see featured on, on the homepage. So he suggested a couple from 1997 to do with the Time Out of Mind album, which certainly for me, and I think for many other people, was a real sort of creative rebirth uh, for Bob and a very, very important album. Greel in the San Francisco Examiner, 2nd November 97, says, this is as bleak and blasted as any work a major artist in any field and by major artist, I mean an artist with something, a reputation, an audience to lose has offered in ages. It's a really nice piece, actually, a map you can throw away about Dylan's time out of mind. I mean, it slightly counters what we were just talking about, Dylan, as, you know, somebody, you know, where you, you can have fun listening to Dylan because Grill is, you know, is writing about time out of mind as as a as as a bleak and blasted album, which in in many ways it it, it is. But it's a great piece to read. He also writes about because it's just at that moment where Dylan has a serious health problem with his heart, and he wrote his this other piece that he wrote for Interview magazine about all these premature obituaries of Bob Dylan, as if everyone's just waiting for him to die, like kind of vultures, you know. Uh, and for a moment, it did look like he might not belong for this world anyway they're two great pieces by obviously someone who's written pretty seriously about bob dylan shall we move on to california billy you know this is something very close to my heart you move you move there you start work at columbia records west coast office the role you play in in la in the 60s you know can't really be understated you, you're such an important figure in the rise of the la music scene i mean just tell us briefly why did you move to los angeles what was it there was a job opening a man named elliot teagle left the job of west coast manager of west coast information services was the title he went to work at billboard so there was a job opening i was recently divorced and a friend of mine, a lovely man named Peter Riley in the publicity department in New York said, why don't you take your son? You've just gotten custody of your son and move to California. So I thought about it and uh, went out Thanksgiving weekend uh, just to look around and actually uh, rented an apartment that Thanksgiving to begin uh, in January of 64. And we moved out January 1st. Elliot picked us up at the airport and we got to the apartment and two hours later, the moving van arrived. The corporate relocation is just quite luxurious if you're nothing <laughs> but a, a wage slave, as I have been all my life. There it was, the truck with all my belongings in it, and they just put it into this two-bedroom apartment in Beverly Hills for $150 a month, it was. Um 
And I didn't know how to drive as a New Yorker. I, I, I don't know anything about cars or anything of the sort. So I would take, I would, I would take the bus to work down Olympic Boulevard and transfer to Rossmore, which becomes Vine Street, to Columbia Records. Went to work there and then ended up buying a car from a, a Columbia Records engineer. Uh, 49 Chevy it was. I began to began to care about cars. It had a whip <laughs> antenna. It had a whip antenna on the back. It was spectacular. This enormous antenna. The guy was an audio engineer at KNX, the radio station that was owned by the same company, CBS. And I did the usual publicity work, uh, uh, press conferences for uh, Patty. Pay- oh, I, I drove. Did I drive with Patty Page? Uh, anyway, I had to go up to the pressing plant, the factory in Santa Maria, where Patty Page made a guest appearance for the factory workers. <laughs> and I can remember, I guess I was a driver, yeah, by then. No, I didn't drive with her. I met her there. I can remember driving off the freeway, and there was a guy sitting on a power lawnmower, you know, mowing the lawn at the factory. And I thought, that guy is in show business. <laughs> there he is on his his seated lawnmower, you know, clearing the lawn at a factory. He, he's in show business. Anyway, that was one of the things I did. And press conferences and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, having lunch with Isaac Stern and, and was it Albert Goldberg, the classical music critic at the L.A. Times, and sending items to Army Orchard and handling the reviewer list. And to see who would get free records from Columbia Records. <laughs> Getting an angry letter uh, sent to me by Goddard Lieberson, the late, great Goddard Lieberson, sent me a letter that he had received from Harlan Ellison, whom I had known uh, for years wow. in New York. Harlan wow. wanted to be on the reviewer list for records. And he, the the science fiction record, writer. So I didn't, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't send him any records. And he sent an angry letter to Goddard. I'll never forget that. <laughs> <laughs> God, I just said it to me to so deal with this, and you know, and talking to Ralph, the wonderful Ralph Gleason, about one thing or another, and just all of this usual stuff, and meeting Bruce and Terry, Bruce Johnston and Terry Melcher, right? Who I didn't even realize till I was just preparing for this episode. I, I hadn't really grasped that both. Bruce and Terry, as well as being a like a singing and performing duo, like surf guys, mm-hmm. were on staff at Columbia. That's correct. In, in, in there Hollywood. was Ed Kleban, the late Ed Kleban, went on to be, I guess, lyricist for Chorus Line or some, and the wonderful Irving Townsend, the late Irving Townsend, ran the West Coast office of Columbia. It's, I think, important to say that Columbia records thought of the California office as a country club. You know, they just disparaged the LA office uh, <laughs> and didn't think much of it or Los Angeles for that matter. So that, that was kind of silly bi-coastal rivalry that had been going on. Uh, but Bruce and Terry were enormously influential in my life. You mentioned cars a moment ago, and I just wanted to quote from another of the pieces that we're going to feature in relation to you on the homepage, which is, you will remember this, I'm sure, this fabulous 
Village Voice piece by Richard Goldstein, the Billy James Underground. Sounds like a band, doesn't it, really? <laughs> but he was talking about it. Um, and so I'll just read this very short paragraph. This is a description of you, really. A brown felt hat shades Billy's eyes from the stars. Well, it's, hands... a bar- Actually, it's a Borsellino. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Bra- let, me re- let me rephrase it. A brown felt Borsellino shades <laughs> Billy's eyes from the stars. His hands seem filled with rings. His eyes jolt out of his head. And the net effect, handlebar moustache to boots, is what people in some parts of Southern California called criminal anarchy. Criminal anarchy. So he, he sees you as, as, as the master of criminal anarchy. But you're driving around in, I believe, an open role. It was correction. Shows. Correction. Oh, good. You're going to correct every piece I quote. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Give you photo credits. All right. He says well, he, cru- this- he cruises. Billy cruises along the freeway out of Los Angeles in an open Rolls Royce. No, it was. So a let's ja- have the truth. It was a Mark V. It was a 1949 drophead Mark V, which uh, I got as a result of my marriage to my ex-wife, Judy. Judith Rutherford Marischal James, theater and film producer Judy James, my ex-wife. Uh, I also have an ex-house that we could talk about uh, in Laurel Canyon. Uh, but anyway, that's well, another. We will. That's no, another no, story. It's very. Anyway, germane. yeah. So it's a it's a jag. It's not a roll. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm okay. looking at a picture of one right now. Pretty slick piece of kit. It's a gorgeous vehicle. Stunning. <laughs> Absolutely it's a wonderful brilliant. vehicle. Marcus Salvatore. She was a Jaguar fan all her life, and I got that from her we we went through a whole series of jaguars we had a mark 10 we had an xk120 uh, anyway did you ever ever have an e-type no oh, no that's a shame melcher had an e-type <laughs> melcher had the xke type i don't know if this has ever been published but we drove to a uh, columbia records convention in las vegas he and i in his xke and we got to the hotel and he decided that he didn't want to stay and he drove home and told me later that he had a kilo of, of grass in the trunk of the car that we had gone over there. And I thought, what? What? <laughs> you crazy person. What are you doing? Driving along in a vehicle with me in it and all that dope. <laughs> oh, Terry, I miss him. I miss him dearly. Oh, Terry, rest in peace. I took my Cobra down to the track. So we could talk about the birds. The problem is we talked at some length about the birds with the aforementioned Richard Goldstein in an episode a few a few weeks ago. So I think maybe it might be more interesting just to talk about, say, the rising suns. And in general, Billy, your I would say your frustration at not getting done at Columbia what you wanted to do you were you were always kind of being there was always resistance is that fair to say yes i sent you the memo that i treasure uh, a copy of it i don't know if it's worth reproducing the co- that that says verbatim we are not interested in signing lenny bruce thank you <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. Well, Lenny was was one of the projects that you just yeah Tim, yeah Tim Harden right Tim Harden. I mean these great talents that are so revered now. Well, there and... are two two chapters in your question. I mean, the birds and my relationship to the birds and how it developed is one chapter, and then the other is my frustration at, at having to now go back to doing you know press receptions for Percy Faith and Ray Conniff and Patty Page and Doris Day and mm-hmm. Tony, the dear, wonderful Tony Bennett, taking him to Leonard Feather for Leonard's blindfold test feature that appeared in Downbeat. Tony was great. I loved working with Tony. I thought, I don't want to go back to do doing that. Mm. There's something else I should be doing or that the record company should be doing. And since John Hammond was a, a director of artist acquisition, Columbia should be involved in formally recognizing its role in, quote, artist development. And in my recollection, only Motown developed its artists as well, giving its artists singing lessons and dancing lessons and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And if you, I argued that if you have a five-year contractual relationship with an artist, you're in the development business whether you want to be or not. And so I recommended to them that they create a manager of uh, artist acquisition and development position. And they asked me who I thought I should report to since it crossed over marketing and A&R. And I thought at the time that they were asking me who should have the authority to fire me in a position that I had created. So I was a little bit uncomfortable but deciding that. So they decided I should go into A&R, which was fine. So then I became frustrated when I would present all of these people thanks to living the life that I had always done, going to the Troubadour, going to the Ashgrove, going out around town, hanging out with whomever I was hanging out with, artists, going to Barney's Beanery, the fabulous hangout for for visual artists, for painters and whatnot. I remember picking up Goddard Lieberson, the late great president of Columbia Records, picking him up at Stravinsky's house and taking him to Barney's Beanery, of all places. (laughs) (laughs) Was that wise, Billy? (laughs) Yeah, Goddard was great. He was great. So he was kicked upstairs, and there was a dissension within the company between Clive Davis, mm-hmm. Bill Gallagher, uh, and there was another lawyer who became the head of uh, Columbia Records, uh, whose name escapes me at the moment, But there, and A&R. So there was this clash within the company. And well, I mentioned earlier that the West Coast was sort of a thorn in the side of the East Coast office, and I was a thorn in the side of the West Coast office, and it was just an unpleasant, frustrating relationship. I signed the doors to Columbia Records. I signed Taj Mahal to Columbia Records. I got Gentle Soul that featured Pamela Poland to Columbia Records. I got, well, Jackson. They never did anything with Jackson. Jackson Brown. Yeah, Jackson Brown. So. Yes, there was that frustration. And so my involvement with The Doors did not produce any records for them at Columbia. I had made the stipulation that the initial term of the agreement was to be six months, within which time the company had to agree to record and release a single. And if they did not, the option was they were, they could exercise an option and be free to go. So 
they then later asked for a release. I said, don't ask for a release. Just don't make waves and shut up for six months and you'll be out of your agreement and you can leave. And then shortly before I announced that I was leaving Columbia Records, Manzara called me to say that they had received an offer from Electra. And I said, well, just between us, because I've not announced it, I'm leaving Columbia for Electra and I ah, promise ah. you I'll do everything in my power once I'm there. Uh, to, and I'm not going to look at this contract that you say you want me to have a look at, sign it, or you know, have your attorney tell you to sign it or whatnot. I'll do. I'll continue to be as committed to you and as impressed with your work as I was when I signed you in the first place. Break on to the other side. Break on to the other side. Break on to the other side. I would just just take this opportunity to mention that you sent me this fascinating interview that Richie Unterberger did with you in 1986, which became part of a UCLA oral history project. And there's, we only have so much time to, to talk to you about this incredible era, but there's an awful lot of interesting stuff in there that you talk about to do with the doors, to do with the birds, to do with Jackson and so forth. And so any listeners, I really recommend reading that. It'll be free for a week on, on the homepage. And we thank Richie also very much for for sending a scannable version of it. So it's a it's a brilliant, it's you just talking about your whole career, Billy, and it's really, really good. I wanted to just jump really into the Laurel Canyon era because many people have told me, certainly, that your house on Ridpath Avenue was sort of really the incubator for what became the legendary Laurel Canyon scene. What took you up to Ridpath Avenue in Laurel Canyon in the first place, Billy? Well, I would say an incubator rather than the. Oh, take the praise. Take the acclaim. <laughs> that's, what everyone, that's what everyone says. <laughs> there I was living in Beverly Hills, and it began to feel like the Bronx, which is a New York reference. I mean, it's a borough of New York that's sort of middle class, it seemed to me, and just very ordinary. And it was just very stayed and proper and it i've thought if i'm in los angeles i should i live at the ocean or in the mountains i mean this is silly for me to be living in the flats in beverly hills and the ocean was too long a drive i thought and so i rented a house on Ridpath drive and then i'm david rubinson introduced me to judy marshall and we fell in love got married moved to a larger house next door on Ridpath. And it was around that time that I then was having a difficult time at Electra, not knowing whether I wanted to be a personal manager or continue to work for record companies. I had signed the Peanut Butter Conspiracy to Columbia Records also. Unfortunately, their agency booked them on tours with Jefferson Airplane, which was also a five-person group with a one female singer. And so that just didn't work. The airplane, having more power, more authority, I think, put the word in they didn't ever want to play with the conspiracy anymore. So there was that. I met Jackson, Steve Noonan, Greg Copeland, Jimmy Spheres, the wonderful, late, wonderfully gifted Jimmy Spheres, Penny Nichols, so I was meeting Ned Doheny, meeting all of Jackson's friends who are similarly gifted 
and similarly prolific. They were just all needing places to stay. So some of them stayed in our home. And then it became a magnet for other people to come by. Nico came by. I need a manager, Billy. <laughs> she said, I need a manager. She said, are you Jewish? I said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, yes, I am Jewish. But I don't see that that, anyway, that was Nico. Uh, <laughs> it was great. <laughs> well, okay. you, can, you, you, can't just leave, you can't just leave that hanging. No, what, no. What, did, <laughs> did she have a problem the mezuzah, with you being Jewish? The mezuzah on the door frame. <laughs> what was your clue, Nico? Come on! But 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 was she saying if, if was she sort of being pro-Semitic or anti-Semitic? Was she saying if you're Jewish, then you can be my manager, or was she saying if you're Jewish, you can't be my manager? <laughs> right. We'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> we'll never... <laughs> oh man. Um, yeah. So yeah. So they, they would all. I would, the diggers. There was this group named after the that traditional English group yeah. of yeah. mendicants and whatnot who would go around who made vows of poverty and lived off the. They would came down from San Francisco asking me for money, <laughs> and I just laughed at them. Money? Never understood money to this day. I don't understand it. Uh, so I no, I was unable. Leonard Cohen came by one afternoon and sat on the couch. Uh, I mean, just people. I just became a magnet. Oh, thanks, probably in large measure to Jerry Hopkins, who wrote a piece about me in Rolling Stone or the L.A. Underground, maybe, or I don't know. Or he wrote something sort of. He wrote a piece about Laurel Canyon and. Maybe, but yes. like Cass, Cass Elliott had was also an incubator, as it were. Uh, there was Butchie, uh, Gene Cho, who later married Bob Denver, but who had the love and spoonful hanging out at her place. Mayo uh, had a house in the canyon. That's Eric right. Burden had a house in the canyon. Zappa had a house in the canyon. George Antiel, going back in history, a musician had it. You know, there were artists who had lived in the canyon. For a long time, having nothing to do with whatever it was I was doing. But yeah, I mean, that was, and I can remember Bob driving up in a car. I can remember Terry driving up in a, a London cab that he had bought, you know, just tootling <laughs> up the, the hills of Laurel Canyon in this UK cab, for goodness sake. And you know, what? Oh, what is that vehicle priceless. doing here? That was Terry. That is so funny. It was a great time. It was a wonderful time. Barney Freedom, Fraser Mohawk was just up the street with yeah, Peter amazing. Talk swimming in the pool and whatnot. I mean, and Jim Morrison, of course, spent time up there. And of course, Arthur Lee, who who played some part in the Doors signing to Electra, I believe, in the sense that the Doors wanted to be on Love's label. I wanted to just mention in this connection that we have just very recently had the green light to start adding pieces by the the very great Paul Nelson. And Mark, you, you, you as it happens... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's from uh, 1968, Hullabaloo magazine. Of course, this being the Doors, 
a lot of words get spoken because not just Jim Morrison, but virtually the whole band use fairly kind of lengthy language. So you get like Robbie Krieger saying, you always have to search and inquire if you want to find out something, or you have to open a door. Everything you know is one thing. Everything you don't know is another. In between is a door. <laughs> and then Jim yeah, says things yeah. like, you could say it's an accident that I was ideally suited for the work I'm doing. It's a feeling of a bowstring being pulled back for 22 years and suddenly let go. And he says, we are from the West. The world we suggest should be of a new wild West, a sensuous evil world, strange and haunting, the path of the sun, you know. So it's, 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 it's 100% doors. I've been interviewed by the wonderful Paul Nelson, who is so great to get him on board, Rock's Back Pages, the late great It Bob. occurs to me that, the, that, and I have no proof of this, I have no evidence, but I expect that that language was introduced a lot by drugs in general and and <laughs> and and psychedelics and psychedelic experiences in particular it would not surprise me sure i mean it's also worth remembering that both ray manzarek and jim morrison were film students at ucla they were from middle class backgrounds were educated young men um they were they, they weren't your average rock and roller in that respect right which was one of the things that intrigued me about him because of my limited experience with musicians or or pop musicians or certainly mm -hmm. rock and roll musicians. That was unusual for me. Sure. Yeah, you say, you say in the Richie Unterberger interview that I mentioned earlier, you're pretty nice about Jim, and you say, I found Morrison's charm and intelligence very attractive in a way that was quite unlike anyone else I'd worked with, and that includes McGuinn, Crosby, Melcher, Bob Dylan, and Zoot Sims as well. Very bright and in the thrall of his music. He had a very clear artistic vision that created notebooks of songs that were different. Again, they weren't Moon in June. I couldn't trace it directly back to Dylan. You couldn't trace it to Tin Pan Alley, and you couldn't trace it to Dylan either. Another tributary had begun. I haven't heard many people, Billy, talk about Jim Morrison's charm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm glad he charmed you. I mean, how do you look back now on, on Jim? I'm grateful that he gave me a chat book of his poetry that he self-published and inscribed to me. I really appreciate his having given me that book, and I regret donating it to a charity that was a, for the American Foundation for AIDS Research. We created a, an event called Music Against AIDS and got artifacts and you know objects from different artists and whatnot, and I donated that. It was generous and gracious of him to give me that book and sign it over to me and he was in i was the man remember so as i think i've said before a lot of those players were very circumspect in my presence i was the man you know and so as accessible as i may have been i was the man so you know i think he was respectful of my presumed uh, authority and credit for my ability at discovering, quote, discovering these people. Had I not been working for one of the largest record companies in the world, I would not have been discovering anything but my own shoelaces. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we need to put all that 
ego gratification in perspective. On the back of that, Billy, I did have a question which I discussed with a colleague earlier today, Martin, in fact, who was going to who was going to join us and would have been great on Dylan. But my question would be this: given these huge names that we're talking about, that you played, you know, a significant part in their development and getting signed and so forth. I mean, do you think in the end that if you had been, say, a ruthless shark of the kind of David Geffen variety, do you think you could have been or would have wanted to become a kind of record company or management mogul on that level? Your question is, if I was not who I was, could I have been something else? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I know how to answer that, Barney. All right, let me put it a different way. Do you ever look back and think, why wasn't I a little more ruthless? You know, why didn't I? Fair enough. Yes, that would be a cruder way of putting it. The way I put it is, why, why am I so stupid about money? (laughs) i mean that's how i put it okay you know why am i so stupid about about advancing my career instead of just you know going along with a smile and a song Uh, it's just not in my nature i'm an autodidact i am a poor student poorly schooled my training was as an actor when I was a teenager. That's how I came up in the world, trained as an actor. So, I mean, and the actors are always pawns in the game, you know? So I've always regretted, and to this day, regret having no business sense then or now. Okay, quick example. I was a music supervisor for a wonderful film called Tulane Blacktop. Oh, yeah. Oh, wonderful, film. wonderful film. I love it. I was film. the music supervisor. Love that. Yeah. The associate producer, a man named Gary Kurtz, which happens to be the name of the Apocalypse Now character, but that's because of his connection to all those other people. Gary said, so I was the music supervisor. I had to get licensing for all of the songs that were in it, in the, in the picture. And he asked me if I wanted to do another, be a music supervisor for another picture. And I thanked him, but said that it it had not been my idea of a good time negotiating deals with music publishers and record companies and whatnot. Well, that next picture was American Graffiti. You go, what, Billy? You've done it again. What on earth? Why did you turn that down? And it's like so many people encouraged me to be a producer. John Simon, wonderful record producer, John Simon said, you should be a producer. Uh, other executives at the company said, I mean, he gave me Charles, wanted me to produce Charles Lloyd. Uh, uh, John Hammond had me record the Dukes of Dixieland, uh, one of his artists, when, when uh, he was unable to come to California and they were here. I didn't feel comfortable being a producer because I was neither an engineer nor was I a musician. So I didn't think, I thought it was reaching. I thought it was inappropriate. Well, how foolish. I should have done it. Right. Next lifetime then. Right. right. Well, that's really interesting and really honest. I know you've had a wonderful life since, you know, you kind of walked away from the record industry. And my wonderful life continues. I am now an enormously successful host of an Airbnb. 
and it's wonderful. <laughs> People come from all over the world to stay in our, our little one-room Airbnb. Be- oh, wonderful. Because we're in the Bay Area, so we're near two major airports. Uh, we're near Stanford University. We're just near all kinds of things that people are attracted to. They, when they want to visit the Northern California, they want to stay here. So we have people from the world over who stay with me, and I'm just delighted to have their company. Oh, that's great. Oh, that's we'll, we'll put a link in. We'll put a link in. in, the, in the, <laughs> well, thank in you. In the show notes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, Jasper. I'll send you. I'll send you the Airbnb link. Thank you. Yeah, do, do. <laughs> yeah, please do. No, I was just thinking about what you were just saying about having been encouraged to be a producer and and how just how you felt at the time and why you didn't pursue that. But in the Richard Goldstein piece in the Voice that that Barney mentioned earlier, he describes you as a professional with an amateur's head, an entrepreneur who participates something new and crucial in pop music. He's quick on the draw, but very slow to fire and usually right when he does, which I just think is a lovely description of of you. And I think maybe gets to the heart of perhaps why you didn't do like that step up because you were kind of too busy just being part of it all. Right. Well, that was very flattering of Richard to say, and I don't know what to add. Yeah, I was part of it. It was it was improvised. I mean, mm. David Crosby told me about his friends, the Jefferson Airplane, and I ought to check them out. He told me about the Love and Spoonful, that I ought to check them out. Well, that that had to do with my unthreatening personality. Oh, Al Cooper once said that he enjoys talking to me because I'm such an easy lay. so so there's that that is part of my amateurishness as richard put it well that's wonderful i think it's probably time to to wrap up what's been an enormously enjoyable we're doing another chapter i could go on yeah we're gonna we'll have to do a part two i mean i want i'm just going to briefly mention i i i looked i googled black rabbit in and found this piece from the Desert Sun in August 1970. The title of the piece is Their Advocates of Healthy Food. And so <laughs> it's, a re- it's a report on all these kind of groovy, funky, organic restaurants opening up in, in L.A. And right. it mentions your Black Rabbit Inn on Melrose Avenue. It says the owners of the Black Rabbit Inn are Bobby Klein, and Billy James, and they say that red wine contains most of the minerals of the earth, and that when Roman soldiers drank it, they kept free from intestinal problems. There are no cigarette machines in the restaurant, which is lit by a fireplace and dim lights along the walls. And I like Bobby Klein's remark, the celebrity is an imposition upon the celebrated. Well, I'll leave it there. <laughs> we'll do another. We'll do a part two one day, and we'll talk about the Black Rabbit Inn and everything well, else. Well, an important uh, omission is our third partner was the PR person Bob Gibson. Oh, it was Bob Gibson? Yeah, oh, there were th- of course there were three of us, and he became a partner at the Roxy, and he opened yes. the Cheetah nightclub and whatnot. Great. I've always wanted to go back in time and dine at the Black Rabbit Inn, Billy. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been it's my really pleasure. been a great, a great yeah, joy. Thank you very much. Well, and, thank um, you all. Thank you for for. Well, it's it's not. It's only Thursday, so you've got another day's work. You have a five day work week, do you? Sort of, yeah. something <laughs> like that. Just to add that, as per usual, there are over fifty new 
articles for subscribers on Rock's back pages. Mark's added some incredible pieces. We were talking about this amazing interview, Prince talking about Dirty Mind, which is my favorite Prince album, possibly Mark's. Uh, it's as well. actually, he's got, he took, you know, that was his stocking suspenders period of live work. Uh, he says, once I'm on stage, I do change. A lot of what we do on stage is not planned, and that helps, I think. For example, we wear what we feel comfortable in. A lot of clothes would be restricting because the show is so athletic, shall I say. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Good. Great stuff. Nice to get that in. Thank you for your time, the three of you. Oh, man, it's a pleasure. A real, a real pleasure. Thank you for getting up so early to be with us. Please. And I'll send you the link to our Airbnb description. <laughs> Please do. So that's goodbye from me and goodbye from my colleagues. And thank you again so much, Billy. Thank Bye. you. Bye. 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 That concludes episode 139 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Billy James. Find the link to his Airbnb in the show notes. The hosts are Bonnie Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Muris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. <laughs> <laughs>